Welcome to this special ISA 2022 edition of 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we celebrate our renowned and path-breaking series, Cornell Studies and Political Economy, which after nearly four decades will be coming to a close upon the publication of the forthcoming book, Mediterranean Capitalism Revisited, edited by Luigi Baroni, Emmanuel Pavoni, and Marino Regini. Our guests today are the instrumental players behind the series, series editor Peter Katzenstein and acquisitions editor Roger Hayden. Professor Peter Katzenstein is the Walter S. Carpenter Jr. Professor of International Studies at Cornell University. His research and teaching lie at the intersection of the fields of international relations and comparative politics. Katzenstein's work addresses issues of political economy and security and culture in world politics. His current research interests focus on power, the politics of regions and civilizations, America's role in the world, and German politics. Roger Hayden recently retired as executive editor of Cornell University Press, where he sponsored books in comparative politics and international relations, Asian and Slavic studies, security affairs, political economy, and humanitarian and human rights studies. He always looked for the unconventional and the unexpected, and sought out authors who were consumed by new ways of thinking. Peter and Roger give us the -the behind-the-scenes history of the Cornell Studies and Political Economy series, their insights into how scholarship in the field has evolved, and their seasoned advice for emerging scholars today. How did it all start? It started with Walter Lippincott becoming the director of the press. The press had been a pretty sleepy outfit. I'd had no contact with it. Mm-hmm. But I knew that it was important for Cornell faculty, mostly in the humanities, not so much in the social sciences. Walter came, I don't know from where, full of beans, young, energetic, and said, in order to wake up the press, we will do here what I've done at that other press, which is have a certain number of books published in different series. And would you like to do this? And I was in year seven, I came in 1973, uh and i said sure uh and reflecting on it why he asked me it was i'd become full professor that year which was young uh i'd become editor of io at the same year and therefore i would be on top of the field of manuscripts and that was very smart because one of the earliest volumes was in fact uh the regime's volume there was the second volume out which became, I think, the all-time winner. I mean, in terms of sales, you know, it was a textbook for 20 years, right? So Walter, Walter calculated smartly and, uh, um, and I was hungry. I mean, that was really how it started, you know? I don't know why he picked me. The third reason is probably political economy as a field was, was in a takeoff stage. Uh, that's really something which happened from the early mid seventies on and a lot, there was a lot of interest in political economy, which had basically not existed. I mean, Hirschman, there were two or three people who did political economy, but it was really rediscovered as a subject in the mid 1970s. I was part of that generation. So that was a reason why he said this would be a good thing to do, right? So Walter always had impeccable taste, I think. You know? Choosing me was a sign of impeccable taste, but he had a very good nose, very good nose as a publisher, right? Uh, and he was very practical. He said, well, 
who would be on top of the field? Well, the guy who's the editor of the journal, the, the leading journal for this stuff, you know? So, so that's how it all started. Uh, why did I want to do it? So in Germany, when you're an assistant professor, your job is for the next five to seven years to re review all the books of your elders and to be incredibly critical. This is counterintuitive because you still need to get tenure, but that's how it is. You're supposed to be a young Turk who tears down the work of others. Then you when become a full professor, you hand that over to the next generation. They tear you down. I wrote one book review in the late 70s, actually two. One was a review essay and I said, that's something I can live with. But the book review, I hated. I hated the process of writing it and I hated it. And it was the only one which I wrote, I think, you know, uh, because I said, why spend your time tearing things down when at the, at the back end, when at the front end, you could make it better. And so Walter's invitation to become an editor has satisfied that need. Okay, I say, okay, here I can work with books and make them better. That seemed to me a more, yeah, a, a more palatable way of improving scholarship. Okay. So I think that is how it started, but that had nothing to do with Roger. No, for me, let me jump in for a little bit, okay? Um, for me, I had moved to Ithaca in 1978 and spent a couple of years with short-term contract writing jobs and um, freelance editing jobs of various kinds. Um, Peter, in I think in 1979, had done a monograph on Switzerland, which was to be published in the Western Society's papers. Uh, which was, um, it, it was actually a fairly substantial piece of work, and he wanted a, an editor to work through it before it saw the light of day. And I, I got that job and worked through it and found out lots of things about Switzerland I'd never known before from a very low baseline, I should add. Um, and a lot I know of grammatical it, mistakes. Yeah, well, there were a few of those, but it was the Swiss stuff that I was interested in. And I've since learned more because my sister is married to a Swiss national and lives near Fribourg. <clears throat> so I, I worked through that and then I went back to uh, writing scripts for uh, teach yourself better English books for the education department for a while. And then in 1980, Peter brought the journal. It was Bob Cohane who was editing it previously right right he brought he brought it to cornell and needed a managing editor and um despite the fact that he'd already seen my dubious talents down on paper uh, decided to hire me as the managing editor for the journal and i did that for five years um and during that time i continued to, um I, can, I, I did some freelance work for the press did more and more of it as the the years went by <coughs> Um, and then in 85, with one year's notice, uh, Peter decided to hand on the journal to, um, to Steve Krasner at Stanford. And Stanford's a very nice place, um, but editing, as you may have noticed, doesn't pay particularly well. And uh, we were already, Margie and I were already uh, pretty much committed to living in Ithaca. So, I applied for a job as a manuscript editor at the press and you could see the twinkle in Walter's eye because he thought, I hear I have Katzenstein as the editor of, of the journal 
and a, a, a rising star, a well-known scholar already. And if I can take him, and then I can also offer the previous, the former managing editor of I.O. Uh, as the person who will handle the manuscript through the press, I have a better package to sell as far as potential authors are concerned. So much to the dismay of the managing editor at the time, a marvelous woman named Marilyn Sale, who didn't think very much of the quality of journal editing, um, he, I think, forced her to hire me as, uh, as a manuscript editor. And I started to work um, not only on political economy manuscripts, but also on whatever else needed to be prepared for the typesetter. Um, this was at a time when manuscript editors actually edited manuscripts, which was a long time ago. Um, and then pretty soon after I had joined the press, which would have been in late 1985, Walter applied for and got the directorship at Princeton University Press. Um, and, but he was going to stay at Cornell for, I can't remember, maybe three months, maybe more than that. And he decided at that point that he would stand back from the acquisitions part of his job, um, in part because uh, Cornell and Princeton were competing over a couple of manuscripts at that time. And I was asked to take over the acquisitions part of um, the political economy series at a time when there were actually two competitive works um, in play uh, between Cornell and other presses. One was uh, Jeannie Louts and Maureen Malott's book about uh, the political economy of contemporary Canada, which was actually, we were up against a Canadian publisher. I can't remember which one it was, but I do. Toronto. It was University of Toronto Press. Okay. Um, but I do remember that the Jeannie later on showed me the comments that she'd received from the academic editor at the University of Toronto Press, which stopped in mid-sentence which was the point at which he had heard that, um, that they had decided to sign with Cornell. And the other was Dick Samuels. Um, Dick Samuels was at MIT. Uh, he'd already published one book on, on contemporary Japan with Princeton. And the second book was called The Business of the Japanese State. It's a really attractive project. And I asked him what he wanted and he told me, and I said, yes. And, I managed to, to get him to sign the contract with the press. It was the beginning of a, a long and very satisfying relationship that involved altogether five or maybe six books over a period of 30 years. So there I was, the first two books that, that I, I approached as an acquisitions editor, success on both of them, both in, in live competitions. I thought, this is dead easy. What could, why, why is there so much fuss about this job? piece of cake um, and I soon find out found out why there was so much fuss about this stuff and that it wasn't exactly confectionery but it, it was a good beginning and um, it was good enough that as the press restaffed uh, with with Walter having departed and other people taking over the various series that he'd started I continued to work with Peter as acquisitions editor on just on the political economy series for about five years. And then I, I left the manuscript editing part behind and became a full-time acquisitions editor. That's interesting. There's a backstory, which I didn't know about the inside of the press. 
he is the inside story, which backstory, which Roger doesn't know. Um, Cornell had, uh, at the time in which I was looking for an associate editor for IO, had just gone through modern human resource management uh, revolution, which meant hiring union busting officials out of Detroit. They had made, you know, a bankrupt industry lean and mean, and Cornell said, that's what we want. They couldn't really do this with existing contracts, but they sure could do it with new hires. Okay, and uh, Roger, I couldn't get Roger on board. I said, you know, he's going to come with a decent package. And that was an enormous amount of fighting. And it delayed the appointment for about half a year. But you know, I'm a persistent dog. And uh, uh, you know, I had the dean behind me if I wanted to, but I didn't use it. Right? Um, so eventually that package came together. And then Roger, you know, of course, there was a competitive editing. I interviewed two other people, you know, but the work he'd done on the Swiss manuscript had convinced me that he's a really good editor. Plus he's fun, plus he knows he's well organized. If you have an associate editor who's incompetent as an editor, you're dead, okay? And so this was an enormously important appointment for me. I spent a lot of time uh, making it work. And then I had clear sailing. I mean, Roger, just think about the annual report. This is a pain in the back. And Roger did all of it, you know, and uh, all the careful editing of the manuscripts. And of course, he built up a reputation. I mean, at that time, we got, what, 150 manuscripts, 120 to 150 a year. You know, he built up a reputation right there with about 500 authors by the time he steps into the Cornell University Press job. And it was clear to me that, you know, that needed a little massaging. So I told Roger, you should leave early uh, in 1985 so that you're not unemployed again, right? I mean, he was in a very marginal position when he came in the late 70s, you know, it was very difficult. So um, that's interesting, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for the effort, which I, I didn't know. It was pure um, self-interest, it was pure self-interest, but it was the enlarged self, right? I knew that my interest and your interest in this were really parallel, it had to work. Yeah. Well, they, they were thereafter because you clearly invested so much time and effort that I would have really had to do badly in order to, to lose the job after that. <laughs> That's fascinating history. Thank you for sharing that. And time and history is what you're uh, mentioning with the series. 148 books published, 131 different authors and editors, 25 plus awards. The amount sold, 373,000 books. How did you see the trajectory of the series go? I mean, how did the how did the field change from the 80s to the present? How did the series change? Well, in one way is it moved like the scholarship from Europe to Asia. We became a preeminent publisher of Japanese political economy because Japan was supposed to own the world. They would hire some American soldiers, but basically the software and the soft power would all be in Tokyo. That was sort of the image of the 1980s until the mid-late 1990s. And then it branched out from there to other parts of Asia. And then of course, in the last 10, 15 years, um, uh, China, right? So that was in terms of away from a Eurocentric worldview to more of an Asian one. But we did not, I mean, Roger was very, very clear, said there are certain kinds of regions we will not do. Latin America, for example, he says that's really much better done by Pittsburgh, you know, and Africa. So we, we were concentrating our regional focus. 
And the other one was analytical. You know, this started off as a new field, which I would call broadly institutional. The state became a big issue, you know, how to theorize the state, you know, state and economy, you know, institutionalist argument or Marxist argument, right? That was the first 20, 25 years. Then came rational choice and rationalism. Uh, and I got off that train and I was much more interested in economic sociology. So the things which we tended to favor in the last 20 years were more sociological uh, in, in their orientation. So those were the two broad themes, basically. Roger, you think that's right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Of course, <coughs> for, for every exclusion, there are exceptions. And so right. for Latin America, we did Kath Sicking's first book, yes. for example. And on Africa, though we didn't do very much within the series, we did do Morton German's book, Poor Numbers, yeah. which did right. very well and was yeah. quite influential. Yeah. Um, and also got him on, um, on a, a do not talk to list for various, um, various African bigwigs and people at the United Nations as well for a while. Um, but um, yeah, th th that sounds right. We probably did a little bit less on Europe as the years went by. And the, the China stuff, at, at least at the beginning of the 2000s, uh, we, we tended to leave alone in part because there was this enormous rush of academic publishers trying to find stuff to publish about China. And so Routledge and Cambridge and two or three other presses had, um, had books specifically devoted to, to China and Chinese politics. And it seemed, seemed not a great idea to be focusing one's attention very strongly um, on China at a time when there was overpublishing of, of that particular country, however important that country might be. Um, we did um, start to do more work on China over the last uh, decade, decade plus, in particular Yunyan Ang's book, um, which is a tremendous piece of work and was very successful. But, but that I think is something that, that actually that you brought in, Peter, right? That, that you had the first contact with Yunyan about. Yeah, I mean, I think the first principle is the book had to be really good. Yep. Whether that really fit or not was, was not so important. So we would publish outside of these mega trends, right? And I think the astonishing number of awards is, is a reflection of that overarching attitude. And Roger and I never disagreed on what's a good book. I mean, that's really astonishing over 35 to 40 years. You'd expect, you know, there would be you know, one or two memorable fights. We never fought. So our intellectual tastes were very much aligned, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember any big fights. I, I was less keen on edited volumes. And yeah, that was, right. I did a few too many of those, right. but, but they were ways of planting flags in new areas, yeah. both geographical and thematic. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds banal, but my job always to find the best books I, that I could and then make them better. Uh, and that's something I think we agreed about, even though I, I didn't know anything about politics. I had no sort of academic background in, in the discipline at all. Uh, um, I mean, the but five issue, years at I.O. really did um, yeah. provide me with something of an education as far as that's concerned. 
the issue of edited volumes is interesting. This really did become, I mean, Roger and I think other presses too said there are too many of them. And as we worked with a junior cohort in the 1980s, these people became senior. When you become senior, you don't write your own books any longer, you tend to edit books. So they would come back with edited volumes and we would gently say, well, not now, okay? Mm -hmm. Try somebody else. And that became often actually the turf for the trade presses like Routledge and Rena. No. Uh, so, and th that explains in part, I think, well, the total number of volumes in the last 10 years published under the imprint of the series declined somewhat. We, were, mm -hmm. we, we, we went for things which were harder to find, really outstanding books. And Yun Yun Ang's book on China is a field defining book. It's, it's a dissertation, but it's cited every place. She's winning prizes every place. Uh, uh, her follow on work is superb. It became field defining. It was probably an, the most successful book we've done in the last 10 years, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that sounds right. With the decades of wisdom that you have <laughs> with this series and, and uh, your work together, do you have any advice for emerging scholars? Well, I do actually, and I won't hold back. I gave a big fancy lecture last year. And uh, the thing, and it was, the lecture was followed by a give and take because my very good friend and the best man at my wedding, David Layton, got the same prize the following year. So they bunched them together and then we had a back and forth. Uh, and so that was the last question posed by the, by the host of the Skitter Foundation. And I said, yes, I do, uh, because I've observed that uh, young authors, I'd say in the last 10, 15 years, are increasingly drawn to the craft model of scholarship. They collaborate with large numbers of authors, three, four, five, six, not, not just one. Uh, everybody specializes on something, data analysis, you know, qualitative research, uh, the programming, you know, the typesetting, whatever, right? And thereby they crank out six to 12 articles a year. It shifts, the, it shifts how you spend your time and thereby the requirements for getting tenure are shifted towards publishing more. You know, has this person been productive? Well, has only written two articles last year. That's not productive, right? Never mind, maybe there were two single authored articles. It takes a year to write a good single authored article and get it published, at least a year. It's an enormous amount of work getting through these elite journals, right? But what it avoids, this mass production system, is fear. Everybody specializes in something small and they are no longer afraid. And I don't think you produce good scholarship without being afraid, that you fear like, the whole damn thing could collapse on you. And I still live with that fear whenever I do a book. I'm right in the middle of it right now. Is this gonna work? I haven't a clue. And if you don't have that, I don't think you will really be creative. So you become an industrious tailor. There was a wonderful title of a book, Professor Russet, Industrial Tailor to a Naked Emperor. Here the emperor is not naked, but he's not well-dressed. But industriousness does not go for me with scholarship. There's a certain amount for this, you know, and there's a certain amount of blogging now and public discourse, which didn't used to exist. 
But if the core of your scholarship is not driven by saying, the idea which I have might not pan out, you're missing, you're missing an incredibly important aspect of generating knowledge. In the natural sciences, they are driven by that fear. You know, it's very expensive to create these experiments and they really don't know whether it's gonna work. So you talk to physicists or biologists, they're full of that existential fear. Here in the social science it becomes more like these humanities. You know, I can spin the story and I get a publication out and the fear recedes. And I think that's a loss. And of course they don't want to write books. They don't want to read books and they don't want to write books. Writing a book as a very brilliant junior colleague would said, takes too much time. I said, yeah, it takes five to 10 years. Um, mm -hmm. You know, therefore you, you write two or three at the same time. And every four or five years, maybe you succeed and something comes up. That's no longer how they read, write and research. It's not the time perspective they have. So I think this scholarship, you know, I think books will eventually be left for dinosaurs, you know, to feed on. Uh, so I see in the social sciences, in economics now, you, you co-publish three papers with your dissertation supervisor and you get a PhD. They don't even have to publish a single article by themselves. They never know what it's like to be afraid. Right? And that's, that's a model in, the, in, in political science too. You know? Not the only model, but it is one growing. And that worries me a great deal about for the next generation that they're missing something essential by having an incentive matrix, which they cannot resist, I totally fear for them, which is misaligned with what scholarship ought to be in part about, not wholly, but in part. Anyway, that reaction, which I gave, I got probably 30 responses by email. I didn't understand your lecture, or the lecture was unimportant. That was really a, wow, that talked to me. And these, were, these were all older, older authors. You're all people above 50. So I don't think it's just my reaction. So, uh. Nice, nice. Yeah, what he said, um, that, that sounds right. Um, it, it's certainly true that political science, I think, has, has looked on economics ever more fully as a model to be followed over the last 30 years or so. And, uh, and given the success of economics in studying its subject matter, that seems to me to be undesirable in itself, even though if they do come up with some very nice theories and, and some very attractive methods. Um, th there's that same existential fear, of course, for an acquisitions editor, um, with the added frisson that, that acquisitions editors actually don't have tenure. And so the, the testing out is not um, a matter of a large number of people collaborating, rather it's one person who has sponsored this or that book and look, here are the sales numbers and what are we going to do about this? So although they, they are very different kinds of fears, um, they do articulate together in a fairly, um, fairly obvious way. And I was always very fortunate that um, that with Peter and, and also with a couple of other series editors, with David Layton um, on the Wilder House series, with Bob Art and Bob Jervis on the Security Affairs series, and much more recently uh, with Eric Alina and John Kirshner on the Money series, uh, I worked with individuals whose tastes I trusted. Um, they knew what they were doing, even if I didn't know what they were doing. 
And if they told me that a particular work was really top rate, then I would do whatever I could in order to get the damn thing published. Um, usually with success, there've been one or two failures, but I don't think there were many as far as the political economy series was concerned. I mean, with regard to actually getting the thing into production and getting a, an actual book out of it. I'm, I'm glad I'm retired because I, I do very much um, recognize the, the, the pattern that Peter's describing as far as, as far as more recent scholarship is concerned in, in quite a few different um, areas. And, uh, and I suspect that, that being an, an acquisitions editor really is no fun. It's certainly not as much fun as I had when I was first starting out. Of course, that may just be sort of golden age nostalgia. Um, but nevertheless, it's, um, it's a new sociology as far as academic production is concerned and one that I don't find particularly attractive. Well, to end on that theme of fun, I mean, I think, you know, academia is, is a profession where you can have fun. And Roger and I had fun. And that's why it lasted so long. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, there's, there's little which, you know, administration drives me crazy. I, I can't do, I mean, I'm a reasonable administrator, but it's not something I like to do, right? Mm -hmm. This was fun, you know, playing with ideas. How could they be better, you know? And I didn't have to worry about the bottom line. That was Roger's problem, you know? So, uh, uh, so I enjoyed this totally. I enjoyed working with Roger, getting to know him. Um, we had fun. Uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, really enriching. Thank you, Roger. It was for me as well. Um, and I'm, I'm always grateful that you put up with me for so long, but thank you for that. Well, thank you both for sharing uh, your time, your stories, the history behind the series, your experiences, and also the insights and wisdom that you can share to future scholars. So I want to congratulate both of you on a very successful series, the Cornell Studies in Political Economy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate the invitation and, and thanks for hosting this. That was Peter Katzenstein, Cornell professor and series editor of Cornell Studies in Political Economy, and Roger Hayden, former executive editor of Cornell University Press and acquisitions editor for the series. You can find all of the books in the series at our website, cornellpress.cornell.edu, and you can use the promo code 09EXP40 to save 40% off of all of them. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>